We've been in a, in a teaching series since the 1st of May that we're calling Fruitful. And how many of you have been here for any of those? I think we did part seven last week. All right. We've been working our way through the passage in Galatians 5 where the Apostle Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So we've been working our way through the list of the nine attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. Last week, we talked about goodness. Thank you, Josh, for that message last Sunday. So appreciate that. Today, we're pressing pause on the Fruitful series to talk about something that we, we kind of need constant reminders on some things. Have you noticed that, just as human beings? And it's especially true, I think, for followers of Jesus. We just need constant reminders of some things we know that are true. Um, really, and I think it's just the midst of every day that we lose sight of this truth. Here it is. This is what we're going to, this is what we've paused our series to talk about today. That everybody, everybody you lay your eyes on is someone created in the image of God. Everybody you lay your eyes on is someone that Jesus died for. Everybody you ever go eyeball to eyeball with for the rest of your life is somebody who is so valuable to your heavenly father that he sent his son to die for them. You are surrounded today by people of immeasurable value. Why don't you just look around? Look at, look at these valuable people sitting around you. Like, you can look, don't look at me. They're all staring at me. Look at people, look at these people. See, you don't get the view I get, but uh, I see people of immeasurable value. The person sitting next to you on either side of you, even if it's your spouse, in front, people in front of you blocking your view of this, uh, everybody has, everybody has just, uh, is someone of such innate value that God sacrificed his son for them. So we know that to be true. So the question is, how do we respond? Like, how do we treat somebody who has that much worth, that much value? How do you respond to somebody who is that valuable to somebody you love as much as you love your heavenly father? Kind of goes back to, I guess, economics 101. If you ever took an economics class in high school or college, you learn that the value of something is determined by the price that it will bring, right? Like the value of anything is determined by the price that it will bring. How many of you ever tried to sell a junky used car? Yeah, you know, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. The value of anything is determined by the price that it will bring. If you want to know what something's worth, find out what people are willing to pay for it. What people really are willing to pay for it, that's what determines what something's worth, not simply the price tag that you put on it. You can, like, you can list your house for however much money you want to list it for, and it seems like right now in just like all of America, you can list it and get that price. So that might not be a good example. But you'll find out how much it's worth when somebody actually closes with a certain amount of money. That's what determines the value of anything, what people are willing to pay. I don't know if you've ever been in a room with, uh, or at an event with a dignitary, where a dignitary was present. Um, Several years ago, we were in Halifax for the Royal Nova Scotia International Tattoo. Uh, this is a, a world-renowned event. Uh, there's one in Scotland, which is very famous, and then there's this one in Nova Scotia, which is kind of right there with it. It features military bands and pipe and drum bands from all over the world. That year's show uh, featured groups from Scotland, Germany, Kenya, New Zealand, Russia. We were there on opening night. And there were several dignitaries there, including the lieutenant governor of Nova Scotia. Each province in, in Canada has a lieutenant governor. In Canada, it's actually pronounced lieutenant governor. The lieutenant governor of the Queen is the Queen's representative to that province. 
So when she was introduced before that night's show, the audience stood as she entered the VIP viewing area because although she's not royalty, she, she's treated as such because she represents Queen Elizabeth. The person sitting next to you, on your left and on your right, the person sitting in front of you and behind you, has as much value as any lieutenant governor or any king or queen or president Because everybody you lay your eyes on is somebody created in the image of God. Everybody you lay your eyes on is someone Jesus died for. So, how do we respond to somebody who's that valuable? The reason this is such a struggle for me is because I'm maybe like some of you. My tendency is to treat people based on the value they are to me. I tend to treat people based on how valuable they are to me, not how valuable they are to our Heavenly Father. I mean, if if you can do something for me, I'm going to remember your name. If you can do something for me, I'm going to be very attentive. If you can do something for me, then I'm interested. I'm going to call you back. I'm going to email you back immediately. My tendency, and maybe your tendency, the tendency of our culture is to treat people based on their value to us rather than their value to God. When I was in middle school and high school, and you're like, oh, I love these stories. You were so weird. Yep. So my, my dad, I never put pictures up. My dad was, uh, when I was in middle school and high school, my dad was pretty well known in the church world in Atlantic Canada. For several years, he was a field rep for a large global Christian school curriculum company, and he traveled all over Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and even in the Newfoundland, and he did these presentations to churches and schools, and then he and his assistant had to visit like 42 schools in the Maritimes every fall, and he was responsible for these conventions for students and for uh, trainings for administrators and stuff like that. I remember as a kid... Um, attending, I would have been probably a freshman in high school, attending one of these events, and I introduced myself to people, and like, hi, I'm Todd, and like, hi, so nice to meet you. Who are you here with? I'm with Bob Crosswaite. He's my dad. Oh, you're Dr. Crosswaite's son, and they'd reshake my hand. You ever had that happen? Right? Maybe you've done it. Nice to meet. How are you? It's so nice to have you here. So here's the deal. When I would introduce myself to someone at these conventions, I was just a kid trying to win some medals and some competition. But then they'd figure out I was related to somebody that they valued. And all of a sudden, they'd shake my hand again, and their expression would change. And all of a sudden, it's like, ooh, very important person, because they valued someone who valued me. Or like, if you're his son... Like, I don't even know you really care that much about you, but I value him. So there's this triangular thing going on. Listen, we value people who are valued by the people we value. Right? Here's the question. How do you treat someone then that you don't know, you just met, don't get along with, don't really like, don't have much in common, They don't look like you, they don't speak the same language as you, they don't have the same heritage as you, but you discover that they are of such immense value to your Heavenly Father simply because they're created in His image, such immense value because He sent His Son to die for them. Like, are you kidding me? That's incredible. What if that was really front and center in our thinking? What if that really was front and center in the way that we did life? In our belief system, if every day we kept front and center, wow, God loves them, like, he's such a jerk, but God sent his son to die for him. 
Like, what if we began to view people and believe that they really were that valuable? Think about the decisions we would make. Think about the outcomes in relationships that you have. Every person, everybody you lay your eyes on is somebody created in the image of God, somebody for whom your Savior died. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, like you're not a religious person, you kind of been, you're not even sure why you're here, there's probably somebody promised you lunch afterwards, and you've kind of been kicked around and bounced around in churches or maybe by Christian people, do you know why? It's because some Christians, maybe somewhere along the way in your story, lost sight of this. Like if we are really being who God has called us to be, we will remember in every situation and every day of our lives that everybody we lay eyes on is somebody made in the image of God and someone for whom Jesus died. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, the apostle writes this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. God so loved the world, right? That's us. That's everybody you ever come into contact with. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's talking about the death of Christ on behalf of the world. As an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that would be like you and me and the person next to you, and in front of you, and behind you, and every person you come into contact with, everybody that you live and work and do business with and hang out with. Then he kind of, the writer kind of rears back and says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, us would be your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, everybody you work with or run into, those who serve you, those with those difficult customers, your boss, your employees, your classmates, your teachers, your ex-spouse, that person at home who wouldn't come to church today and just kind of gives you a hard time for even coming, you know, the person who fired you, the person who abandoned you, that person who grew up in another country with a different cultural value that you can't seem to identify with. Since God so loved us, here it is, we also ought to love one another. In other words, God's saying, if the person to your left is someone I can love. If the person to your right is someone I can love. If the person in your life is someone who is so valuable to me that I would sacrifice my son to restore a relationship, if I can love them, surely you're not too good to love them too. And John says, since this is true, you ought to love one another. Why? God would say, because I paid such a high price to bring them into relationship with me. You are so important to God. And he wants me to treat you based on how important you are to him. What if you and I could remember this? What if this huge overarching truth of the gospel found a way into our thinking and remained front and center? If that could be the grid through which we make our relational decisions, our interactions at home, at work, at play, at school, at the grocery store, at restaurants, on the road, in government, about around political issues, like if we let it impact the way we vote? What if we approached everything we do in life, even like through in the church, through this lens? Imagine the difference if we kept this front and center. So, we all agree so far. We're all like, yeah, of course. The question is how? Like, how do we do this? How do we treat everyone as if they had immeasurable value? What does that look like? 
To answer that, I want to go to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which we sometimes say is Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human and the broken reality of the kingdom of God. That's what we sometimes say. <laughs> Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human and the broken reality of the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is how God views the world. It's God's views on relationships. It's the way life is. Even though it's in contrast to the way maybe that you've always believed, or maybe it's in contrast to the way that people around you are doing life and what they're saying and what they value. In this teaching, Jesus is saying, when you decide to follow me, when you decide to follow me into life in my kingdom, this is your destiny. This is what life looks like in my kingdom. So I want to pull out just one phrase, one short sentence in Matthew chapter 5. And it's in verse 13. Here's what it says. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus' audience um, knew the context of salt in their culture, that salt wasn't a taste enhancer. They didn't think of salt in terms of, please pass the salt, all right? Salt was a food preserver. This was the refrigerant of the ancient world, right? That in essence, he's saying you are the preserver of an entire planet, that your presence and your environment is like salt on meat, that the spoiling that's happening around you, Jesus is saying, through the Roman Empire, you're going to be able to slow that, not just because of things that you do, but simply because of your presence in the world, because a little bit of salt goes a long way and a little bit of righteousness goes a long way. In essence, Jesus is saying this body of information that I'm giving you, that I'm about to unload on you, this worldview, these values, this way of treating one another by simply living out these values in this world and in our culture, you are a preserving factor. And I think they sat there and no doubt thought what many of us might think as we begin to get specific about this. They probably thought, "But, but, but, but who are we? Like we're overtaxed. We have no financial leverage. We have no political leverage. We have no relational leverage. We're nobodies. We're Jews living under Roman occupation. We're God's forgotten people. What do you mean we're the salt? We're the preservative of the entire earth. Like nobody's even paying attention to us. I think that's what they were thinking and Jesus knows what they're thinking and he goes on because he knew that he was entrusting to this group of people a body of truth and a way of seeing the world that without it, the world would spoil quicker quicker, and ruin sooner. And as followers of Jesus, listen, we need to get this. We are the stewards of a worldview. We are the stewards of a way of thinking that values human life. And Jesus, Jesus came into the world and into a culture where that was not the rule. It was a world so void of the kinds of values that some of us take for granted. And into that culture... Jesus said to this group of Jewish people who were squashed and oppressed, but who were starting to embrace his teachings, he says, you are the recipients, you are the stewards of a brand new way of viewing the world. You are the preservative. Listen, you are the salt of the earth. I don't think we can overemphasize the significance of this teaching this day on a hillside, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus took the values of Judaism mixed with the values of this cycle of oppression and occupation and began to replace them with the values of his kingdom. And he brought the perspective of his heavenly father into the conversation and said, you are the recipients of this idea that men and women and children are equal. They all have value, rich, 
poor, slave, free, men, women, black, white, Hispanic, immigrant, legal or not, straight or gay, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, Republican, Democrat, or somewhere in between, all are equal and all have value. When Jesus spoke these counter-cultural and counter-intuitive words to his audience that day, it was to a culture that didn't value any of these things. So he says, you're the recipients, you're the stewards of a worldview, and if you don't take it and live it out, it will disappear from the world, and this world will continue to spoil and rot and ruin because you are the preservative, you are the salt of the earth. So he goes on in the rest of verse 13. He says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, it's an interesting thing here. In our English Bibles, there's a phrase that reads, loses its saltiness. In the Greek text, it's just one word, and it simply means a lack of wisdom or to make foolish. So there's a little bit of a play on words in which Jesus is saying, you are the wisdom of the world. And if the salt is no longer salty, how can it be made salty again? So if this body of truth, this worldview, this paradigm, this lens through which we're to see the world, if it disappears, then there's no hope because there will be no hope. He says it's no longer good for anything except, and he digs way down into their way of life that they would have completely understood what he was talking about. He says, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So I think this is an interesting thing, and I love the language of Jesus when he's teaching. And in this part of the world at this particular time, people didn't get their salt from the sea. They didn't get it from a mine. They didn't get it from Hannaford or Walmart or Amazon Pantry. They got their salt from salt marshes. So what they would do is they would go out into a salty marsh where the salt water had come up on the land and they would find vegetation that was actually salty, like reeds and ferns and anything that was saturated with this salt water. And they would take those things home with them and they would rub those things or maybe wrap those things around some food, around fish or around meat or around some vegetables. And basically by doing so, the salt that was in these plants that came from the marsh would transfer to the meat or the fish or whatever it was and consequently would preserve it. But over time, those reeds or ferns that they brought from the salt marshes would eventually run out of salt. They were no longer salty. So when those reeds, for example, were no longer salty, they'd take them up to the roof of their house and spread it out on the roof. And the roof was like part of the house. It was living space. They slept on the roof on hot nights and they entertained on the roof and it was part of the house. So these formerly salty plants would help seal the roof from rain and create a surface for them to walk on. So Jesus says, you know what it's like once you've used up all the salt out of something? You know what I'm talking about, right? And they're like, of course. They're like, what do you do with what's left over? Well, you take it up to your roof, you scatter it on the roof, and people walk on it because it's no good for anything else. So he says to this group of people who had no idea what was ahead of them, and it's preserved for us because he's speaking it to us, you're the hope. You're the recipients. You're the stewards of a view of God, a view of righteousness, a view of relationships that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet. You are the preservative, the salt of the whole earth. Now, don't go out and live lives that are saltless. Otherwise, in terms of the value you bring to the world, you're not contributing anything. You're not making any difference. Oh, and it's like, I still love you. Like, your heavenly Father still loves you. Like, you're still my children. But in terms of your effect on the earth, if you're not salty, it's not serving any purpose. Here's the thing about salt. Here's what I really want you to get. Salt, and some of you know what I'm going to say because we've had this conversation from this podium. Salt always makes a difference. 
Salt always makes a difference. It's the middle schooler or the high school student or the college student. Listen, you are the salt of your school. You're the salt of your school. And you're like, I don't have any influence. Like most of the kids don't even know who I am. I'm not the captain of anything. I'm never going to get my picture on anything. I can't possibly make a difference. You can. Because salt always makes a difference. And you may not see the difference. But God says you make a difference. Because salt always makes a difference. Some of you, you're the salt of your workplace. You're like, why am I even here in this particular job? Because you're the salt. You're the salt of Walmart store 1932. You're the, there you go. You're the salt of Northern Light Health. You're the salt of Ellsworth High School and GSA and Sumner and MDI High School and Ellsworth Middle School and RSU 24 and SAD 37 and Union 93 and Mears Academy, and I hope I didn't miss any. You're the salt at Kids Peace. You're the salt at the Jackson Lab. You're the salt at that car dealership. You're the salt in your office. You're the salt with your patients, with your clients, in that restaurant, in that shop, in that store, on that job site. You're the salt in your small business. You're the salt on that committee where you serve, on that board, on that team, in your department. You're, you're, you're salt in your family, you're, in your circle of friends, and with your classmates, with your kids' friends. You're like, oh, I'm so far down the ladder. Like My job's always at risk. That's okay. You're the salt. Like, I don't see him making any difference. God says you're always making a difference because salt always makes a difference. The fact that you are there living out these values of Jesus' kingdom always makes a difference. You may be the salt of your family. Like there may not be another God-fearing, Jesus-following person in your family, but God has salted your family with you. Your presence makes a difference because salt always makes a difference. Maybe for some of you, the call of God is for you to leave your home, maybe for a week at a time, maybe for a few years. Maybe it's your life calling to go to a faraway place to share the light of the gospel and to be the salt of the earth. Sometimes you can see the difference you've made. Most of the time you won't. But rest assured, from God's perspective, you're making a difference by simply being there because salt always makes a difference. And a little bit of salt goes a long way. I want to talk for a few minutes about a couple ways we're trying to live this out. One of our... uh, one of our 12 core values at, around faith community is that servanthood is our operating style. So in other words, we believe that first and the most basic way to communicate value to others and to express God's love to others is to serve them. So we do that in three arenas. We serve one another by serving in the church. It takes 30 to 32 volunteers to do what we do here every Sunday. At last count, we had over 80 volunteers on, to, to, on serving on 10 different ministry teams to make what happens here happen on a Sunday morning. Uh, and, and we want Sunday mornings to be meaningful and helpful and inspirational and memorable. And, and, and then there's all the people that serve in other ministry areas and environments through the week. So we serve in the church and we serve in our community. For instance, like for the last 14 years, we served with Relay for Life. We raised over $100,000, mobilizing dozens of people. We've served at Lowe's and Fish's Food Pantry for years during the month of July. And speaking of which, did you notice we didn't schedule any volunteers in July? Some of you noticed, and one of you mentioned it to me, because Lowe's Lowe's and Fish's has moved to a a different volunteer model. They're away from the monthly block of volunteers, so we're exploring ways to kind of uh, expand our involvement with Lowe's and Fish's. So we serve in the church, we serve in the community. Those are a couple examples, and then we serve around the world. Now, for the most part... Our service around the world is through financial support of individuals and organizations who are carrying out kingdom objectives in other parts of the world. So let me talk specifically about two of those. Josh and Sarah Wiberly, who serve in Turkey, and Kairos Ministries in Guatemala. Josh and Sarah uh, are missionaries in Ankara, Turkey. 
We've been supporting them for a long time. Sarah grew up in Ellsworth. Uh, she was one of my youth group kids when I was in youth ministry. Uh, for all of her summers during high school, she worked at, at Living Waters. Uh, I had the joy of leading a group of high school students on a two-week mission trip to Chile in South America, when, and Sarah was a part of that team when she was in high school. We launched this church after Sarah had gone to college, but when she came back home, she made Faith Community her home church, and Craig and Christy are her parents. And uh, so I don't know if that had any influence on where she settled for a home church or not, but Sarah and Josh have been uh, serving in Turkey, and I've tried to figure it out. It's got to be 20 years now, and Josh and Sarah produce videos on a regular basis to keep their supporters up to date on what's going on in their lives and ministry, so if you subscribe to their email, you see those regularly. Maybe for those of you who haven't had a chance to learn about their ministry, I want to show you uh, their latest video. This is Josh and Sarah Wiberly in Turkey. January started out with the unexpected treat of us being able to take a deep breath at Sakintepe before life cranked up speed. As soon as we returned to Ankara, the race was on. January flew by like a racehorse bolting out of the gate. Josh's parents were still with us at this time, but they traveled a bit to visit people in other cities. Shema was able to finish out 2021 in the black, with good prospects for ample income for 2022. Josh presented a Hassat seminar on Christian worldview via Zoom. February was full of online meetings for Sarah as well as some emergency counseling to help a couple of floundering young believers. Continue to pray for these young people as they work through their struggles in life or with their marriage. During this time, we also visited online with three churches, two of which support us. We attended a three-day conference for our focus group at the beginning of March, which took place in a hotel with thermal pools. It was like a trip back to old Turkey. Since we have lost personnel on our field over the last few years, the teams were restructured and we were asked to take charge of all personnel in Ankara. This means more responsibility for us. Pray for us as we try to fit our new responsibilities and old ministries together and take stock of where the work in Ankara is at and how we can encourage our new teammates in their ministries. Josh presented an Old Testament survey seminar for Hassat in Ankara. He co-presented it with a Turkish brother from another city who is training to be a seminar presenter for the same topic. Josh's task was to watch and evaluate the new presenter's methodology. The brother did a good job for his first seminar, and Josh is very encouraged that more locals are taking on an interest in learning about and teaching the Old Testament. We also created a video for Shema explaining why over-the-air radio is still extremely important. Towards the end of the month, Josh and Sarah attended a marriage intensive with the goal of learning the methodology in it to help counsel Turkish couples in the future. It turned out to be very positive for us as a couple as it reminded us of several tools and habits we had been using before the pandemic hit and had gotten lost over the years of being locked into our home. A dear friend from Denmark visited us and Shema at the end of March with the aim to launch a new program aimed at evangelizing men. During this time, Shema was approached with the possibility of purchasing a radio license that would allow the station to broadcast nationally. The price is extremely reasonable and comes with many antennas already in place, some in cities we are praying towards broadcasting it. Pray for wisdom as to whether to go forward with this and for God to provide the funds to do so when the time comes. At the beginning of March, we were contacted by a young man named Joshua, 
who also grew up with our company. He was offering to come and tutor Max. After some prayer and discussion we agreed to his coming, he arrived on April 1st and is now helping Max with his schooling. We will be preparing to return to the U.S. at the beginning of July. Thank you so much for your faithful prayers and gifts. We understand that we are living in very difficult economic times and we are very grateful for the sacrifice that you make uh, on our behalf in order to allow us to continue our ministry here. May God bless you abundantly for that. Thanks for watching and stay tuned for the next update. you uh, get Josh and Sarah's email, uh, you'll get those updates every quarter or so. And if you aren't getting their email, uh, we have a sign-up sheet in the lobby today. Just provide your name and email there. We'll make sure that info gets uh, passed on to them so that you can uh, be added to their email list. As Josh said, they've been in the U.S. now for a few weeks, and they'll be with us next Sunday morning, August 7th, and on Tuesday next week for that gathering on the 9th at 6.30. This is a gathering to kind of give an update on their ministry, and we're doing it a midweek because, as this being Sarah's hometown, she has several supporters in other churches in the, in, in the area, and a Sunday morning or a Sunday gathering just was too many conflicts, so we're meeting on Tuesday. So um, I really hope you'll be here and mean a lot to them, and you'll learn some stuff. About 10 years ago, I was introduced to the new, at the time, the new pharmacy director at Maine Coast Hospital, and uh, we were introduced because someone in our small group had the audacity to invite him and his wife to our group, and uh, we quickly, thank you, Carrie, we quickly struck up a friendship, and it seemed like every time Tim and I talked, he was talking about short-term medical missions, it's like a broken record, and he'd been on, so, he'd been on several medical missions, but the one he talked about with the most passion was in Guatemala. And at the time, short-term missions was not on my radar at all. I had done short-term missions in the past, understood their value, encouraged it for other people, but it wasn't something I was thinking about. And eventually, Tim wore me down. And I'm like, you know what? If it'll get you to shut up, let's throw it out there and see if there's any interest. And I had pretty low expectations, and man, did I misread the room. In February of 2013, we gathered 19 people from faith community, plus a couple friends from out of state, doctors, nurses, a pharmacist, pharmacy tech, EMT, a bunch of us who were willing to do just whatever was necessary to support that team. Then we worked with that team for 11 months, preparing, planning, building community, establishing trust, praying together. And in January of 2014, we did our first medical mission with Kairos Ministries in Guatemala. We followed that mission with another team in November of 2016 and another in November of 2018. If you've taken a few minutes to look at the pictures around the room that we put up for our our 25th anniversary a few weeks ago, you'll see some pictures of our Guatemala teams. On each of those missions, we've conducted four days of clinics with a couple of providers and a handful of nurses. We see about 150 patients a day, so that's pretty consistently around 600 patients in those four days of clinics. All told, we've taken 35 different people on these missions and if you've been around for a while, you've been here for at least one of our, of our mission debrief Sundays where we give the team an opportunity to come and talk about their experience. And that's always an inspirational uh, Sunday morning for sure. It's been a while uh, because since we've uh, done a trip because our trip in 2020 got canceled because of COVID. 
And we were working towards putting together a team for this fall, but it's, uh, we just haven't been able to find a second provider. We've got some other kind of personnel challenges, and, and we've never had to kind of like force the issue. And so we're waiting on, on God to bring that team together and maybe looking at some dates in the spring and praying for a second or third provider. So we're going to talk a whole lot more with you about that. This is kind of cool. When we go to Guatemala, we don't do this on our own. I could not imagine. Uh, not, I mean, we'd be completely lost. So we are so blessed to partner with Kairos Ministries and the Valdez family uh, and to host teams like ours. And some of them are here with us today, and they're sitting right up here. And uh, we're so glad to have Paco and Priscilla here with us, and uh, Gustavo and Elizabeth and other, some other girls. And I didn't get to meet your mom. Hi there. Welcome. And uh, so, yeah, they've got a whole family gathering here. If you might have run into them yesterday in Bar Harbor, I don't know, with them and the other two million people. Um, Paco and Priscilla, along with their son Francisco, uh, lead Cairo's house. Now, if you remember, when our 2020 trip got canceled, we shifted our focus to raising funds to help with the purchase of a new home for Cairo's house. And man, did you respond. You responded so generously. We can't wait to see the new house uh, and to gather for a meal with all of you. Uh, Gustavo and Elizabeth are going to join me. If guys, if you can bring the stools out, that'd be great. Uh, they live in Pennsylvania, and uh, Gustavo is our host and guide uh, when we arrive in Guatemala. I feel like by the time we land in Guatemala City, my work is done, and I said, it's all yours. Uh, we, we wouldn't go anywhere without Gustavo. <laughs> so, uh, and Elizabeth, um, I don't know if you have an official title with the organization, but I, we just, we understand how much you put into it, the work you do behind the scenes in order to make these experiences full and rich and stress-free, and uh, that doesn't go unnoticed, so thank you. A lot of you uh, kind of know Elizabeth because you were inspired by the videos that she did while they were raising money for Cairo's house, uh, and uh, thank you for all you did for that, too. I've asked them to come talk with me for a few minutes, so we're going to kind of shift gears here and do a little bit of an interview and um, let them come join me. They've been spending the week here in Maine. Tell us a little bit about your week. Oh, well, I'll let Elizabeth do that because she's really good. If you get the, our emails, you know that she does this story is really good. So I'll let her. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have um, a friend um, who has been my dear friend for years, and she and her husband um, have recently just entered into a new journey where he is um, a traveling nurse and so they took a position up here in Maine where his family is from and so for the next three months they're living in Greenville, Maine where his family is upon so we've been able to benefit of mm. being family um, mm. and spend some time on their pond this week relaxing um, and then we were able to work in a visit with you all. Yeah, that's, that's so sweet. I love it. And uh, tell them thank you for because without the traveling nurses where would we be right now, right? <laughs> so I know I've heard. So let's talk a little bit about the mission of Kairos House. Can you talk a little bit about um, why it exists, what kind of services are provided for those that don't know? Sure. So Gustavo just celebrated his 45th birthday um, last Wednesday. Um, and I share that because when he was around three or four years old, he started to become very ill, um, which required um, not just doctor visits, but hospital stays. Um, some of those stays were months at a time. He was the youngest in Guatemala to have his gallbladder removed at the age of four and a half, five. Um, he had a brain tumor um, during his youth. He also had some other issues um, with his kidney, um, one of which had to be removed. Um, and so during that time where he was in the hospital, which was a public hospital, Guatemala is divided 
um, into departments where we have states, they have departments. So there's 22 departments in Guatemala. Each one has a national or a public hospital in its capital city. However, Guatemala City is the capital of the country, so their national hospital is the largest and has more resources compared to the other public hospitals, however, very low resources if you were to walk into a U.S. hospital and compare it. Um, but during the time that he was in that hospital, Paco and Priscilla were there by his bedside, um, and they had the privilege of going home at night to rest their head. They had family nearby that could bring them food or sit with them and accompany them or um, tag out and sit with Gustavo. But they were able to witness around them that not all families had that blessing. Um, there were families that came from the far west in the country, which is about a 12-hour journey through bus and pickup truck and walking. Um, people who came from Belize um, and even Honduras and El Salvador. Um, and they would just have to sit with their child, um, sometimes not understanding Spanish because they would speak their own Mayan dialect and have struggle with understanding what the doctors were saying. Um, and they'd have nowhere to stay because all of their money was spent making that journey with their sick child. And they often left maybe eight children at home um, just so they could come be with that ill child. Um, because of the way the hospital works, most parents, depending on the age of the child, aren't necessarily allowed to be in the hospital. And if there's more than one person in the family traveling, other families would have to wait outside. And so Paco and Priscilla would see these people sleeping on cardboard boxes, propped up against the building, finding a bush, just to find some protection from the weather, some safety from the um, elements and whatnot. Um, and it was during that time that God put a seed in their heart. They'd already been in ministry. They were going to celebrate 50 years of marriage next year. Um, and Paco has been um, started seminary shortly after that time, and they've been in ministry together for over 40 years. Um, but Kairos um, was planted um, during the time when Gustavo was in the hospital. So years after he got out of um, his health struggles and things like that, they started coming to the hospital um, with permission to give food like bread and coffee and blankets to people who are sitting outside. And they did that with some families from within their church. Um, God blessed that and it continued to grow and they did that for several years. Um, but they knew that that wasn't enough. Um, they felt in their heart that more needed to be done for these people um, because sometimes that piece of bread and that hot drink was all the food that person had in a day and they were only coming three days a week. And so that just didn't sit right with them as they were going home to their comfort. So God put on their heart to um, find shelter for them, um, for the people um, on the street, which is a big task because it's a third world country and there's not, they themselves weren't were on a minister's salary and didn't really have enough of their own, so how is this going to happen? Um, Gustavo and I met, and that's a whole other story for another time, um, and felt <coughs> called to join in the ministry um, at the time, not knowing what that would mean, but our heart was to um, look at where these families were coming from, because it was just the hospital ministry at the time, and said we had the dream, you know, what if we could go into these communities and bring treatment there, um, so that way maybe they wouldn't have to make this long journey into the city. Um, a year after we got married, um, we started looking for a house, and fortunately, four blocks away from the hospital, um, Paco and Priscilla found a house that um, would be adequate for welcoming people. They went and saw it. Paco said, okay, we'll take it to the lady, and they got in the car. Um, when they got in the car, Priscilla, who had remained quiet, which is very uncharacteristic of her, um, until they got in the car, 
she said, Paco, what are you thinking? How in the world are we going to afford this house? We have no money to pay for this, to cover it. And he says, it's God's problem, not ours. Why are you stressed about it? Mm -hmm. And so Priscilla, doing what she does best, got on the phone and called a few people. Um, and before they made the 20-minute journey back to their house, she had three families who were willing to pay the monthly rent for that home covered. Um, that kind of blew up, and we're, Kairos will have uh, 19 years since opening December 1st um, this December, and God has been faithful. We never missed a payment on rent. Um, we never had to close the doors because of not being able to take care of people, um, and then Gustavo and I just um, started helping grow the groups and things like that from there. That was a very long answer no, to your question. No, that's awesome. You, <laughs> answered, you actually answered three of my questions, okay. so good. So. <laughs> Because when we talk about, like we talk about Kairos House, and then we talk in the context of church about our medical mission trips, sometimes there's a disconnect between, you know, what is the house and what are the mission, how do the mission trips, so you explain that, how we, how we establish that relationship with some of the villages. Um, so for us as a church, our primary involvement since 2014 has been through medical missions. Um, let's talk about why those clinics are even necessary. And I know we, you and I sit and have these conversations when we're, when we're there, and um, why it's so important that teams come from so far away to spend a few days to provide basic medical services. Why is this even something that needs to be done? Oh, well, so many, so many <laughs> reasons. We, uh, no, these people that come from, from the country into the city, they have nothing. They have to come and see. And, and, and like Todd was actually saying today, it, it, sometimes they feel that they're, not, they're nobody. They have no value. Sadly, our government treats them like that. They have no value. Um, and uh, Todd asked a question in one of these trips. Said, would it be worth it just to give you all this money instead of bringing so many people and you can do better? And I said, well, that would be nice, but it's, it's better for them to see you and see that you care for them. So every time they, they see people, they come from so far away and, and spend all this time, money, and they're willing to play and to hug and, and to care for these people and what, give them some deworming medication and mm. Tylenol. That yeah. means a lot. And, and part of what we do as a care is to try to reach people for the kingdom of God is to, to show them that, to be that companion in their struggles, um, to, to show them their... No, no, they're the salt also, and, and, and that's why I think it's so important for people to, to still come into contact with the people we serve. Let's talk a little bit about um, what are the greatest needs right now for Kairos House in the city? Um, so one of the, I'd say, most pressing needs is um, just... Obviously, number one, continued prayer. Um, the work that my in-laws do um, and my brother-in-law is, um, for those of you who are in social services or um, healthcare or things like that, you know the emotional toll that goes on you when you're pouring into others. And so I'd say just continued prayer for rejuvenation for them um, to keep doing what they get up and do every day. Um, we also have um, the blessing of this new house, which is incredible because we have no rent to pay anymore, which is just fantastic. Um, but it's a lot bigger house, and um, even though it's beautiful and it was turnkey, there's still some needs within the house, one of them being um, new windows. And if you saw just the front side of the house, there's a back side that has just as many windows, and they all need to be replaced. Um, and we know windows in the United States are not 
inexpensive and there's a little bit more of a markup in Guatemala for those. So that's a pressing need right now. We also have some other construction needs around the home. Um, and then just basic needs that we need for people within the home, like um, we give each person their own um, sanitary pack, basically, when they come in with soap, shampoo, a towel, and things like that. So we have to constantly refurbish those things and replenish. Um, and then looking at our current caretakers of the home who have been with us since the opening of Cairo's house 19 years ago, um, they are um, towards the end of their... Mm journey in life. Um, though they are committed to staying with us, we also had to keep in mind and be praying what comes after mm -hmm. they are no longer able to do that. So trying to follow God's leading mm -hmm. with that. Um, um, some projects too we, we need. Um, this house is amazing. It, it, I, I haven't been able to see it myself in yeah. person, but um, there is this uh, roof uh, place and, and people can hang out there. But um, the sun just beats all day. Mm -hmm. So we need kind of like build, in a, build a pergola up there. That will be great. Uh, we need to um, upkeep the, the uh, truck that we have. Uh, the, there's a truck that we use for the ministry. We need new tires. Uh, and that was, I was looking here that my dad did send me that this morning. Um, and like Lisa said, the windows are very, very important mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. What about um, on the medical team side of it? Has there, been, has there been a medical team since COVID? No, so now with us, okay. and I understand there was another uh, clinic we helped set up and they're still open, okay. um, but there has not been a medical clinic in the community communities we serve. So gotcha. that is really, really important mm. to, to mm -hmm. be able to see them. Um, we do have some patients that we were keeping their uh, uh, blood pressure medications. Uh, there were a couple of patients that we have with um, diabetes, thank you, and epilepsy that we were trying to uh, have those medications uh, given to them at least every six months, uh, but we have been able to do that. Gotcha. I know one of the things we talked about, I think it might have, I don't know, sometime in the last couple of years we've talked about just the challenge of, so these communities were used to seeing teams every few months um, and kind of counted on that, and now for two plus years, there haven't been any teams, and the idea of like a, kind of reestablishing that trust with them, that they haven't been abandoned, not by our choice, right? Um, what's that process going to look like to kind of win that trust? <laughs> I wonder. Okay. <laughs> um, it took us about 15 years, 13 years to do it, to, to gain that trust first. Mm -hmm. um, which it was really uh, interesting process. I think we have that the food in there, but um, not not being able to come and un understanding the the back in these villages, we're t we're talking about people on the mountains that uh, there's not a lot of world news coming in. So uh, maybe understanding the COVID that uh, it was not only there, but it was here also. It was everywhere. It, what COVID affected wasn't just people's health, but people. Uh, ability to travel and ability to pay for travel. And I think um, just trying to convey that to them is going to be a challenge. Yeah, for sure. We um, were fortunate that over the past um, two and a half years, um, we were able to send, with the help of supporters from here in the United States, um, several from your church and your church included as a whole, um, Paco and Priscilla made at least two trips up throughout the year where we would bring basic needs um, 
to the different families there in the village, especially those who were struggling the most. So they would get rice or beans and oil. Um, at Christmas, we were able to have a little smaller celebration with some of them, um, again, to remind them that they are not forgotten. Oh. And then the, I want to speak to that a little bit more, that it's when we're br bringing these medical teams to the villages, as Gustavo said earlier, um, that yes, a large check would be nice, and we could definitely put it to use, but those relationships are what matter. We have two children um, right now in the village who I was actually WhatsApping with this morning, thanks to technology, amazingly enough, um, that today is the anniversary of their mother's death. Um, the daughter is our eldest's age, 17, and then their son, her son is um, gonna be 19 this fall, and their mother passed away about four years ago. She had been struggling throughout their life, and um, one of the women who came down with a medical team from another church, she is not a nurse, she's not a doctor, she sells real estate. Um, but she gets dragged down with one of our good friends every year and she just does whatever's asked of her. She sweeps, she plays with the kids, she smiles at ladies, she holds babies, whatever is needed of her. And these two kids, she has a boy and a girl herself and they just pulled at her heartstring. And when she learned that the mom was on her final way to heaven, um, she said, please let me know. Um, what I can do to help. And she looked at their house and she came and did a home visit with us and she saw the one room that they were in that was about the size of this stage, which had their cooking area, their mattresses and things like that. She watched this mom who weighed maybe 80 pounds, um, frail as a bone, um, struggling, gasping for air. And she asked, what's gonna happen with these kids? Because they were still kids, little. And we said, we don't know. And at first she wanted to take them home with her. I said, you can't do that, Cindy. <laughs> There's so many laws against it. Um, but um, she said, can I? she's like, I don't want to just throw money at a problem, but will money help? And I said, it would definitely give them a life. And so she came in an agreement. She said, if they agree to continue schooling um, and they make it to graduation, I will send a monthly stipend to pay for their food, their school supplies, and things like that. And so for the past four years, this woman, um, who hasn't been able to return to Guatemala, because we haven't, she has been faithfully just sending um, money each month that we then in turn um, get to them. We have a friend who's in Chiquimula and she is helping with Disperse, the, and the kids have been going to school and thriving, um, but they're struggling. And so being able to reach mm -hmm. out to us, mm -hmm. even through a WhatsApp, I spoke with the son on the way mm -hmm. down last week, um, and them and just being able to remind them we love you, mm. um, and being able to hear back from them, the son actually, who it'll go months, and he doesn't, he's a typical teenage boy, doesn't say anything, mm -hmm. but he said to me in a text last week, I'm so thankful to God for you all. You're the mm -hmm. family um, that I've lost, and mm -hmm. God has sent you into my life wow. for a reason, and wow. I was just able to encourage mm -hmm. him, and so that is what teams do when they come down. They just are those hands and feet yeah, of Jesus. That's really special. I'm pretty sure it's the same family that some of us got to visit. I know Isabella had a moment with that mom too four years ago. So um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's wrap this up. I want to just um, let you speak to anybody here who um, maybe when we've talked in the past about doing this mission trip um, has found themselves on the fence as to whether this is right for me. Um, whether they're medical professionals or not, because we kind of need both. And we're going to be talking about this in the next few months. So what would you say to somebody who's, uh, you know, considering it but not sure what they should do? How do you tell them they need to go? <laughs> I'm diverting to going back into 
cheeky mula Gustavo mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and try to be a little more uh, maybe in your face type of thing. Yep. So when we do these trips, when we talk, we're in a situation that is you are out of your comfort zone. There's no doubt about that. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hot, hotter than here. <laughs> Definitely hotter than Maine. But it's going to be hot and it's going to be something that's not your normal everyday life. That is a sacrifice for sure. But normally when we talk about the people we serve in Guatemala, what we talk about the people we serve in Caribbean, we talk about the sacrificial love. You know, so many times we talk about love and it's an abstract concept. Yes, I love a good burger. Mm -hmm. I would not sacrifice for a burger, but I love it. Mm -hmm. It's love. What, how did God did love us? What, no, what you were saying today, you know? Is that sacrificial love that we are willing to give something because we love that person that God loves so much? So what about if we uh, take that just little step of faith and do something that's going to be uncomfortable for a week and let God be. Let God guide you through that. Normally, we ask the question in Guatemala, where did you see God today? Where did you see God every day when you wake up? Is God telling you to do something? How many excuses do we have? I have a lot. Now going to the United States, Gustavo. <laughs> the same thing. Just let God understand let him understand where you are and, 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 and let him help you sort excuses with the value that you will have um, after coming back from an experience that really you can't get anywhere else. Um, like the missionaries in Turkey, mm -hmm. they are seeing God working because they're there. And sometimes they rely on you send them an offering for them to, give, to do that job because they're sitting there. So if you get to come to a place that you see God work, I don't know, maybe God would encourage you to go into uh, some type of different career or, or mission as long as you let God uh, guide you in that aspect. That's good. I wonder if uh, your mom and dad would join us, Paco and Priscilla, if we could pray, if we could pray for the four of you and your family and your mission. Would you join us in praying? And if you just feel, if you feel so led, just kind of extend your hand and we pray a prayer blessing over the Valdez family. Father, we come to you this morning and we are so grateful um, for the people you put in our path. Thank you for that, those many conversations years ago with my friend Tim. In, who just pushed me to say, hey, maybe, maybe this is a thing. And uh, through that, leading us to relationship with the Valdez family and Kairos Ministries, through our interactions with them and our experiences with them, like in, in their uh, environment, we've been changed. Some of us, our worldview has been greatly affected and our view of what the church is, what the kingdom of God is, has been so deeply impacted. And for that, we're just really, really grateful. Pray for Paco and Priscilla and for Francisco 
in their day-to-day ministry with people who are hurting, people who are carrying such heavy burdens for maybe their own health or the health of a loved one um, as they minister encouragement to them, as they provide their physical needs, uh, God, and just give them the strength that they need uh, to be your hands and feet, to continue to love as you loved. Um, for Gustavo and Elizabeth and their role here on this side of things, um, I pray that you would give them a, just a clear vision of what it is that you would have them do. Um, thank you so much for their ability to bring their gifts, their passion uh, to this team. And um, for our future relationship with Kairos and with the Valdezes, God, I pray that you would lead us. May we be sensitive to your Holy Spirit over these next few months as we explore uh, the possibility of another trip. Bring the right people into that team so that we can uh, have another, uh, just another opportunity to share the love of Jesus through ministering to, to, to physical needs. Thank you for our church family who gets it, for our church family who's so supportive, so sacrificial and generous, and uh, for all of that, Father, uh, we give you thanks. We pray your blessing on the Valdezes in Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.